What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 7 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Loveland, it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'd like to start today by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation on whose land this podcast was recorded. I'd also like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, as well as any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening to this episode of the ERRR. Before starting on the main content of episode 7, I wanted to thank Cameron Malsher of the Teachers Education Review podcast for his questions and comments on Twitter following episode 6 of ERRR with Jennifer Stevenson. Cameron asked on what basis the interventions in episode 6 were classified as either evidence-based or non-evidence-based. In reply, Jennifer's definition derived from John Hattie's hinge point of an effect size of 0.4. But Cameron astutely pointed out that interventions with an effect size of under 0.4 are not necessarily non-evidence-based. It's more a case of the fact that in the studies on which Hattie drew to create his meta-analyses, there was less evidence of high impact on academic learning from these instructional techniques. Thanks very much to Cameron for prompting this important clarification. Perhaps a more apt classification would have been above hinge point or below hinge point. Now, onto the main episode. This episode we were talking to James Mannion. James qualified as a teacher of science in 2006. He holds an MA in person-centred education from the University of Sussex and is currently a final year PhD student at the University of Cambridge. James's doctoral study is a five-year evaluation of learning skills, a new approach to learning to learn, which led to significant gains in subject learning, especially among young people from disadvantaged backgrounds. And this is the paper and project that we speak about in this ERRR episode. James is an associate of the UCL Institute of Education and currently works with schools throughout London and Southeast England to help develop evidence-informed practices such as lesson study and practitioner inquiry, a topic on which he regularly presents educational conferences. He is a founding member of Oracy Cambridge, a think tank dedicated to promoting effective speaking and listening skills in schools and the wider society. You can contact James at james at rethinkinged.org or via at rethinkinged. The paper that James nominated for this episode of the ERRR was entitled Learning to Learn, Improving Attainment, Closing the Gap at Key Stage 3. And for those not from the UK, Key Stage 3 means years 7 through 9. This article details how James led a whole school learning to learn approach in his school in the south of England. Despite reducing the amount of time spent by the participating students on the usual subjects, such as maths and English, these students actually perform better in comparison to a match control group in these core subjects. This is a fascinating intervention with approaches such as teaching students how to philosophize in order to help them to better think, learn, and have better outcomes more broadly. The article reports some spectacular results and prompted a thrilling discussion. Get ready for Beth and I to ask some pretty hard questions of James as well as being genuinely inspired by some of the stories and experiences that James was able to share. This is the longest ERRR episode to date, but there was just so much to delve into. 
So without further ado, let's jump into episode seven of the ERRR with James Mannion. James Mannion, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. The, the first question we usually start off with is if, if you're at a party and you meet someone and they say, oh, hi, James, uh, what is it that you do? What's your answer? Oh, man. Um, I try not to talk about teaching at parties because it makes people glaze over. Hey, um, what do I do? I guess I'd start with my PhD at the moment. Uh, I'm in a period of transition. I'm getting this thing finished by the summer. So I'd probably say that I'm doing that and I'm trying to figure out what I want to do next. Cool. So before that, were you just a teacher? Have you always been a teacher was this, or was there something else you did prior to teaching? Yes. So I uh, became a teacher at age 30. So before that, uh, I used to be a scientist. So I worked uh, in neuroscience and then I worked in the pharmaceutical industry for a bit and then realized that that was awful. And then I um, sort of had a bit of an early midlife crisis, as I mentioned in that blog that I sent you. And I, um, I took myself off to Morocco and figured out that I needed to become a teacher. And then I did that. And so I was, a, I was a secondary school teacher for 10 years. And then I, st- I stood down from that role last summer to finish on my PhD. Cool. And how did you, we're kind of moving into the project Genesis. The paper that, we, that you assigned for us to reading, read was about uh, a school which exists, but uh, went by the pseudonym Seaview. Yes. Uh, and you worked there, you'd worked there for a number of years prior to this project occurring? Yeah, I've been there for four years when the project started. Cool. So what was the genesis of genesis of this project how did it come to being whose idea was it uh where did it come from so um i suppose it came from a few different places a few different sources that all came together at once um one of them was just simply that you know in in 2010 my the head teacher who's a new head teacher to the school he'd been there for one year and he sent an email out to all staff saying i want to start a what was initially described as a thinking curriculum uh, for all students in year seven, and they were asking for teachers to get involved in that program. So the the, the sort of the, the mundane answer is just that I replied to an email <laughs> and said, yeah, that sounds good. Um, and I wanted to get involved. Um, before, like going back a little way, like around that time, I was just finishing my master's, which was in um, person-centered education. And which had focused on a few things, but the, my dissertation was about uh, philosophy for children, which had really just blown my mind as a as a very different way of doing education um, from being a science teacher, from delivering knowledge and a curriculum. This was about helping kids to uh, to work with what they already know and to question the world and to question one another. Um, and I, and I just got really into that, and so. Um, I think that partly the reason that I was so keen to get involved in it was that I thought, well, first of all, we can get philosophy on the curriculum every week for these kids. And we've also, and he also gave us five lessons a week, which was huge. Um, And so I thought, well, we can put together something really interesting here. We can take a number of areas of evidence-based practice and put them together into this package and really do something radically different within, within a mainstream state school. Yeah, and, and there was a colleague who was very instrumental as well, Kate uh, McAllister, who I still work with now, although we, we don't work at that school anymore. Um, and she had previously worked with the head, so he brought her to the school to help set up this new curriculum. Uh, she'd, been, she'd been working on similar sort of, they called it primary model. There was lots of it around around that time, people trying to figure out like 
how to smooth the transition from year six into year seven. I don't know if you have the same thing there. Is it year six to year seven where, where people transition from primary to secondary in Oz? Correct. Yeah, okay. So I'm, I'm guessing that you have similar things there, do you? Year seven curricula that are like primary model or trying to reduce the number of teachers that kids get in contact with or whatever? Yeah, and try and reduce the amount of movement there is between classes, try to have like a home class and all the teachers come to them, stuff like that we do have. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's not, it wasn't, you know, we weren't breaking new ground. We were, we were very much part of a, of a wider movement. And a little bit, I think, I was just talking to my son about this on the way to school. I don't know how it came up, but just as a little bit of a background, one of the things that I did before teaching, for about six months, I worked as a typist, just like temping job, typing for the probation service. Um, and I hadn't ever really thought about that before. And I don't know if you know much about probation, but the way that it works is that when um, it's sort of part of the legal system, and when somebody's been convicted of a crime, they um, they come into contact with the probation service and they have an interview with a probation officer, and then they type up a pre-sentence report, which they then send to the judge, and that's used to inform sentencing. So it's basically, you get the, the person's life story. And it was my job to type up pre-sentence reports. So I just sat there, and over the course of you know six months or so, I just like had this incredible insight into hundreds of people's lives. Wow, whose whose lives whose lives had gone off the rails, you know, and they were obvious, you know, and it tended to be quite low level stuff. Um, they were basically sort of shoplifting in order to to feed addiction, typically. And what I noticed was that there was there seemed to be a sort of pattern. I'm not sure whether it was to do with the way that the the probation officers structured their reports, but it seemed like there was always you know, just a good start in life. The per person had whatever, like, you know, good stuff going on. They had a family, job, flat, friends, you know, partner, whatever, kids. And then something bad would happen. This is not in every case, but it was in a lot of these cases. Something bad would happen. They lost their job, partner left them, or, you know, somebody died or there was a sudden illness or whatever. And the person would just be completely unable to cope with life's knocks essentially and so instead of you know figuring out how to get through that they would you know start drinking or taking drugs to you know blank out the pain i guess and then they would become addicted and the spiral begins and they start to lose their money they lose their job people leave them because they're bad news and they find themselves homeless or living in sheltered accommodation stealing from shops and it was it's widespread there are, like brighton's not a big town and there were hundreds and hundreds of people in this position and it and it, it, i remember it occurring to me around that time that that you know you can't control life's knocks but you can help people to become resilient and to to become to become able to deal with life's knocks when they come along and that was something that i thought well surely the education system has had we've had this incredible window into everybody's lives 10 or 15 years of the most formative years of their life what did we do with that opportunity did we help to prepare them for life or did we do some other stuff and why? And so um, that, was, that was something that was in my heart right from the outset, becoming a teacher, that as well as teaching my subjects, I'm really passionate about science, I wanted to help people to become, to become resilient. And, I, and, I, and I'm talking about emotional resilience here. And I don't think that this is something that you can do by just teaching a knowledge-rich curriculum. There's more to it than that. And so um, that was in my mind as well, and, and in my thinking. And Kate had similar sorts of ideas about wanting to, wanting to support K 
kids to, to help them to, to come to help themselves. If, if there are kids who aren't getting support from home or elsewhere in their life, that they need to become uh, very sort of um, independent is not really, doesn't really go far enough. But a, a sort of autodidactic questioning, you know, to find their, to have a sense of identity, to, to sort of to, you know, meet the world head on, you know. And that was very much her thinking. And so, yeah, that was a bit of background in terms of what we were wanting to achieve with this curriculum. That's great to know. And it sounds like you really had a kind of unprecedented opportunity with the commitment that this head came to the school with, the fact that he brought Kate with him, the fact that he sent out that email and and was able to give you five periods per week. So I can imagine at the start Mm. of that, it was quite exciting, but also quite scary. You kind of now had so much freedom uh, and possibility to do do with it what you what you wished. Yeah, I don't think that the fear uh, really occurred to us at the time because, like, w- one of the things that made a big difference about what we did was the, the very fact that he asked people to apply to get involved. It was a competitive process. More people applied to be on that program than than were able to be to teach it, and so um, we were really really up for it. And it was the fir- that was when we sat around the table. Uh, and I looked at this team of teachers and I saw how up for it everybody was and the energy around that room was not like you normally get in a department meeting, you know. Uh, and I thought, well, this is incredible. This is really an opportunity to do something different. And what often happens is that people people um, get given things like this on their timetable. They, they're sometimes referred to in the literature as skeptical conscripts, you know, people who've got a bit of time on their timetable. Like, oh, you do a bit of this. You know, I was at a school recently where they have um, reflection session once a week. It sounds great, you know, half an hour of just metacognitive stuff, making links between subjects, but it's staffed really badly, it's planned really badly, and it just doesn't work. And you think, well, that's a no-brainer, right? Like, we need to staff things properly. Um, and so we were, just, we were really fired up and excited about it. We, I don't think we were daunted at all, because I think that we felt um, just really energized and enthused by this opportunity to do something different cool so you were kind of sitting at the crossroads and knew you had five periods per week i'm wondering how you decided what kind of interventions to, to focus on or what elements to include in your intervention you, you mentioned in your in your paper the kind of teaching and learning toolkit by the sutton trust what role did that play and and how else did you come to decide yes uh, so so the the toolkit came out in 2011 um, and we <clears throat> started this program a year before that. So um, we weren't huge. Like the, as, as the program developed, the toolkit, you know, we, we, we drew upon that. But the idea is that I mean, we were influenced by Hattie. So Visible Learning was out in 2008, I think, uh, and we were all familiar with that. And it was, it was essentially three key ideas from the literature from from that and also from the literature that I'd engaged in through my MA and other people within the team of metacognition, self-regulation and oracy, speaking and listening. Um, And so we decided to sort of focus it around those three key ideas. So so in terms of that, in the paper I I saw that you mentioned that you were actually avoiding two things that had previously happened quite a lot in these kind of interventions. One was, one yeah, was so, learning styles, so and that's you know, kind of fair enough because uh, we all know about the lack of evidence to back that up. But also you, you talked about uh, avoiding content knowledge or avoiding the delivery of content knowledge in this program. I was wondering what you meant by that. 
Yeah, I think that if I wrote that article again, I would expand on this point a little and contextualize it because nothing, you know, gets people's heckles up these days more than saying anything against knowledge, you know, heaven forbid. So what the paper said, as you say, was that there was very little delivery of content knowledge by teachers because that's not what this was. It wasn't a subject. It was about the process of, of how we learn, not what we learn. And obviously there are, there are things that we have to we have to have content that we work with. And so it wasn't devoid of content, um, but the content that we put in place, sometimes we would, we would um, you know, give some input if there was, if, when they were running an allotment, they needed to understand some of the terminology around different types of plants and so on, different tools. Um, when we were uh, doing, we did a student, uh, students as researchers um, module. So we had to put a lot of input in around the process of how you carry out a research project because kids think that research is just like, you know, write, type a question into Google. So we were talking about, you know, surveys and questionnaires and interview styles and so on. Um, but we were, we were basically, like part of what we were, our stance in relation to knowledge was that once they're able to read to a reasonable degree, that, that students can, can access knowledge for themselves, right? And so it wasn't an anti-knowledge thing at all. Um, so to give you an example, like some, one of the projects that we ran was a group. We did one independent research project early on and they could choose a topic of their choosing. And that, to be like, on reflection, didn't work massively well because they just they, they chose things that were not particularly taxing. You know, that my, this is a project about my favorite football team or whatever, or these are about fast cars. You know, but it was fine because it was you know it got them into something that they were they were interested in. But if I did that again, I would make it more academic. And what we did with the group research project later in the year take them to the library and say, you can use these shelves and these shelves and these shelves and not these ones over here. So like pick something that's basically a topic that you could do at university, but that you can't do in school. So there was stuff like politics, anthropology, you know, photography, history of art, stuff like that. And then they came back and then they had to negotiate within their groups what they were going to do a project on and then, and then research it and write a presentation over six weeks. Um, and so there was this there was this one group where the, the, there was a girl who had um, found a little slim book about feminism, some battered old you know book, and she was this she'd never heard of this before. She blew her mind. She was like, feminism is a thing. I hadn't even heard of this word, uh, and she immediately got it. You know this idea of equality, and so she wanted to do something on feminism. And the other kid uh, who was in her group had found this book on Latin America. It was one of those huge picture books, you know, glossy sort of coffee table thing. And he was just like, he had never heard of this entire continent before. And he was like, oh my God, like, this is ridiculous. How could I not have ever heard of a continent? And so I wanted, he wanted to do something about that. And they couldn't decide what to do. And so they ended up deciding to do a project about, about the history of feminism in Latin America. Wow. And then the, and then the, <laughs> and then the third kid who wasn't in that day came in and he was really obsessed with China. He was always doing like Chinese scripts and stuff. And he didn't want to let that go. So they did a comparative study of the state of feminism in China and Latin America. <laughs> like 11 year old kids. And it, I, I remember this like this conversation unfolding and I was sort of over, overhearing it. They sat on the front desk and I was like, just trying not to grin. I was like, this is unbelievable. And, it, and then they, they really went, they went for it. They had, they, they had some help from a TA because they were really struggling. 
um, you know, to access some of the text was very dense. They were print, printing off reams of stuff about, you know, like communist, <laughs> could be world of like relationship between communism and femi feminism, very heavy sort of heavy going stuff. But they pulled out this incredible presentation, you know, they were talking about, because communism is a common thread, right, between the two. And then they were talking about things like foot binding and China and the one child policy. Uh, yeah, it was absolutely amazing. So it wasn't content free. Um, it was about helping them to become autodidactic in the way that they access knowledge and deciding what knowledge they want to access. Okay, more about the process. Cool. Beth's losing it here. She's she's loving it. Um, <laughs> there's a pretty outspoken uh, educator in the UK, a very very famous and well respected one, Tom Bennett, and he's he's made comments on on learning to learn interventions in the past. And one quote from one of his books is uh, as follows: "It isn't even a thing. We've been hoaxed. The hipsters are selling snake oils on this one, whether they know it or not." Also, in at the start of your paper, you talked about four learning-to-learn interventions that had happened in the past that were very, very well-resourced but, you know, failed to kind of yield any sort of measurable successes. So off the back of that, mm. what made you think that anything that, that you kind of had in mind was going to actually work or have a positive impact? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so, yeah, that book um, of Tom Bennett's called Teacher Proof um, is about a sort of, you know, just taking aim at a number of, of practices, learning styles being one, things like um, brain gym being another, or uh, what's that thing, neuro-linguistic programming and so on, I think he was trained in. And, you know, we were doing some pretty strange things for a while back in the, you know, in the early 2000s, Brain Gym being probably the strangest. Did, did, was that a thing in Australia? I think it was, uh, but that's a bit before our time. Right. Okay. So it was based on, in a sense, it was based on a sort of like a nice-ish idea that, that learning, like school is a bit like a learning gymnasium and you can get better at stuff with practice. And, you know, there are lots of phone apps that are based on this same sort of idea that you just do like mental arithmetic and you get better. And there's a whole there's a whole conversation in the background here about the difference between, you know, fluid and non-fluid types of intelligence. But uh, that's probably a bit too much to get into. But um, I can I can understand like his con like some of Tom Bennett's concerns around learning to learn precisely because. Um, you know, one of the things that one of the things that he reviewed in that book was a project called Learning How to Learn. It was one of those four that you mentioned that I picked up in the paper. Um, and they did this, you know, quite a big uh, study. It was quite well funded. And they found that there wasn't really a big impact. And I think that just to take to so those four things, one was learning how to learn. There was one that was called Learning to Learn, this big 10 year project. Uh, there was uh, the the Royal Society of Arts over here had a had a curriculum called Opening Minds, which was all about competencies, and uh, there was one called Building Learning Power, and um, and for in each of the cases, if you if you drill down, if you look at the headline figure, what they what they found was that in these big evaluations that were often done in you know dozens of schools across five different local authorities. So there was no discernible either positive or negative impact on learning it, it, on academic attainment it didn't really affect things one way or the other and so i think that that was what tom was alluding to um to, to basically say you know that we've tried this thing and it didn't work so let's move on and my take on it was that we've tried this thing and if you actually read the read the literature really carefully we find that there were examples where it worked really well 
And when it worked really well, a consistent message from all that literature is that it's when there's a whole school approach, when everybody's on board with it, when you've got things in place, when you've got, for example, a dedicated team, when you've got a head teacher who is you know, visibly and audibly behind it so that the clear message is coming from the leadership of the school that this is a direction of travel, when it's properly funded, when it's properly resourced, when there's training going on. And, you know, another problem with that literature is the, the fact that it was happening during this time in the, early, in the early 2000s when there was quite a lot of flaky practice going around in relation, you know, when I trained in 2006, VAK, visual auditory kinesthetic, was a, was a, a column on every lesson plan and you had to, you know, you know, you had to plan for how to cater to kids' different learning styles. And, and that was flaky. And, and lots of that stuff was happening at the same time as this learning to learn um, work. And so essentially we had a question and I think I made this, wrote this in the paper, you know, we, we take a different view to Tom. We don't think that it's snake oil and that it's hoax. I think that there's lessons that we can learn here if we just think about it in a bit more of a smart way and think about how we implement, like implementation science is, is this sort of emerging field, um, which is really fascinating. You know, if we, if we understand the principles of, of, you know, like metacognition, self-regulation, oracy and so on from the literature from little studies that have been done and how can we then turn that into a into a whole school program that actually replicates those findings and that's a really interesting problem they call it they refer to it as knowledge mobilization in universities like we we under we know all this stuff but how do we then translate that knowledge into social policies and social practices that have the desired effect on the ground and it's a really really fascinating and super important area, I think, which I don't think that many people are really looking at as many as they currently should. For example, we, we talk about research ed. I think that, you know, in a sense, we've done a ton of research. What we don't know is how to actually put stuff into action in a way that, that makes, an, it makes an impact on the ground. Because what we find, if you look at the EEF toolkit, and, you know, at the top of that toolkit, it says feedback, right? The, the most important thing that teachers can focus on is, is the quality or quantity of feedback. But if you, look at the, if you look at the distribution of effect sizes that sits behind that finding, uh, we find that actually in almost, half of, in almost half of the cases of feedback interventions in schools, it actually makes things worse than if they'd have just done business as usual. And so it's not enough to just look outwards and say what works in the literature. We have to be hard-headed and actually implement things and measure the impact of what we do and think about, about yeah, about how you actually put things into practice. Um, and so, and I, so I thought, well, I think it was partly because of this opportunity. We had, this, we had the time. We were given a department. We had this dedicated team of people. We were doing it at the level of one school, so we could have a pretty good degree of control over what happened in that one school rather than across 35 schools. And so I just thought from the outset, we haven't given this thing enough of a shot. I think that there's, I think that there's, you know, room for improvement here. Um, and part of that, I think, links to um, this idea of, of like four generations of learning to learn. Um, did, you, did you come across that in the paper? Yeah, you mentioned that. Yes. So um, the idea there was that um, there's, this, there's this pamphlet that I came across, um, Learning to Learn the Fourth Generation by uh, Guy Claxton, which really helped me to sort of crystallize my thinking around this, this, um, 
this movement, if you like, starting from, you know, 1976 when uh, John Flavel first started using the word metacognition. And off the back of that, as I mentioned in the paper as well, there was all of this activity that's focused essentially on the how of learning rather than the what of learning. Um, but actually, there's more to it than that. So he goes into these into this idea of there being four generations of learning to learn. Um, and if I just dig out the... So the the first the first generation is essentially this idea of just like just normal. I don't to be honest, I don't really see the first generation as being an example of of learning to learn. It just seems to be about about just normal what happens normally in schools. So I would question that. But so so this yeah so so Claxton describes it as good take good teaching is about content and acquisition. And then he talks about the second generation stuff, which is about you know like study skills and revision tips and exam technique and so far. And so good teaching was considered to be, you know, delivering content, but also teaching kids how to how to pass the test, right? And then the third generation is what he talks about where people started to to take into account the emotional climate of the classroom. So in this country, we had this thing called SEAL, the social and emotional aspects of learning, which was a huge program that came out of, of government, of the National Strategies Department, I think. Uh, I don't know if you've had anything similar in Australia. There, there was a, lots of stuff in the States as well around social and emotional learning, SEL. Have you come across this? There's a movement. Uh, I think what's most prolific at the moment is positive psychology uh, in schools in Australia. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's essentially that, that sort of idea. So this idea that like, you heard lots of people talking about self-esteem at the time, about... Um, you know how to how to help help kids feel good about themselves and how how was the best way to do that and actually that's that was a, that was the starting point for my um masters the, my, my first thing was like a, a literature review of self esteem and i immediately found that self esteem is much more complicated than people think <laughs> and it's actually quite counterintuitive you know people like you often hear people saying oh this kid is badly behaved because they've got low self esteem and so they you know we, if we just tell them that they're really clever and tell them that they're really good and we'll help them believe in themselves, then they'll then we'll sort of break them out of this cycle. But actually, you know, as Carol Dweck talks about about the you know the types of feedback that we give to kids, if you say to a kid you're really clever, but they haven't put the work in, uh, then that can be quite a dangerous thing because they think, oh well, this person is telling me that I'm clever and I'm not working, so I must be doing this is this is okay, right? Um, and that was in multiple intelligences was around then, you know, so people started to think about that, about how to modulate the emotional classroom, the emotional sort of climate of the classroom, so that you know, differentiation is a part of that, so that things are not too hard and not too easy, so that they're just stretched to the right amount. Um, and you can see where it was going. I think that the, the, there's a seed of a good idea in all of these ideas, this idea that intelligence isn't just a single thing, you know, the whole theory of whether how many intelligences there are and how a gardener's model has been questioned. Um, but the, I don't think that the idea that people can be intelligent in multiple ways is a controversial one, right? That's pretty self-explanatory. Um, but how that actually translated into classroom practices, I think that we, we were just like in the fledgling stages. And so when people, some people now say things like, I feel really angry that when I look back and I see 
uh, you know, the, the, on my, in my training, people were telling me, for example, about to put VAK on every form, that this was somehow some progressive conspiracy that I was just being spoon-fed this, this nonsense. And I wasn't, What's VAK? VAK? Oh, oh, so VA, Visual Auditory Kinesthetic Learners, so learning styles. Got it. Um, and Claxton has a more sort of forgiving analysis of this, of this period, which, you know, looking back and brain gym was, you know, where people were, you know, rubbing their clavicle button here in order to increase blood flow to the brain. So that, you know, like looking back, it's just really, really, you know, butt clenchingly cringy and embarrassing. But what he says is that actually, you know, this stuff wasn't like designed by evil people. They would do, it was well-intentioned and yes, it didn't work out, but actually we don't need to, there are things that we can learn from this. It, the, the the fact is that they were focusing on emotions. They were focusing on the on the how of learning and not the what of learning. And it was just a, it was just a stage in our development that we went through. Like looking back at some you know adolescent haircut that you wouldn't you know get away with now. But it was you just look back and think, well, I had to go through that, right? And so then he then he talks about the fourth generation, where which I, I see as being very much aligned with what John Hattie talks about uh, as, as visible learning, right? So the the the, the, the processes of learning are really explicit. So what's in, what, what is usually implicit when you're talking about, you know, here's the what of learning in this lesson, we're all going to learn about this content. But the, the, like, how are we going to learn that? What do you actually need to do? What learning behaviors will we actually need to engage in in order to uh, acquire this knowledge or these skills? And what do successful learners, what, what is that kid over there doing? when they walk out of every lesson having got everything that they needed to get that this kid over here isn't doing? And how can we just talk about the how of learning? So it's about making the processes of learning transparent. And that, I think, resonated with my own take. It's sort of independently, I'd arrived at essentially a fourth-generation model. So, yes, I found that to be quite a useful way of looking at how the, how the movement has developed over 40 years. Yeah, that's super handy. And maybe it's a good opportunity for us to make yeah, your intervention in itself a little bit more transparent. I'm really keen to delve into some of the components of what you did in a little bit more detail. So you actually, you wrote a recent uh, blog post uh, entitled Why Oracy is More Important Than Literacy yeah. and Numeracy Put Together. And I found it quite inspiring. And there was one particular part in it that I wanted to share and then kind of get you to give us a little bit mm. more information about this. So you talked about how one day you went to a gifted and talented conference where a local primary head teacher spoke passionately about philosophy for children. And then you went home and you kind of got tra- trained up in it and you implemented it. And you said, once my classes had learned how to interact in this way, the lessons would fly by. And I could see my students growing in confidence and eloquence almost in real time, observing quietly as my students politely and articulately questioned their own and others' ideas, looking on as they deconstructed arguments and developed a new shared understanding witness the forging of new ideas this was what i came into teaching for mm. could you and, and you alluded to the kind of your passion for philosophy for children earlier so could you tell us a little bit more about philosophy for children and also the role of oracy in education yeah sure um so philosophy for children for anyone who's not aware of it um it, it was developed by this guy called matthew Lippmann. it was a, a, a university professor at columbia university in the states uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, and he became frustrated with with the fact that you know students were turning up for his philosophy undergrad course, having got good grades, but they seemed to be 
almost incapable of rational thought and, and of, of reasoning and systematic and open and open-minded sort of critical thinking which is so fundamental to the actual practice of philosophy rather than just the study of text and so he thought well we need to obviously go you know go back further some way further down the the education uh, ladder if you like and so he put together this program where he would it actually mutated and changed quite a lot what he initially did was to write some some children's stories um, which took some of the teachings from you know, Western philosophical thinking and distilled them into a, a, a story, right, so that a kid could understand. So one of them was called Harry Stottlemyre's Discovery, obviously a play on Aristotle. And, and, then, he, and, then, and then you would sit down in a circle, um, and it's important to sit in a circle. One of the things that I... One of, one of the things that I really struggled with for years was in my first couple of years of teaching is like, how do you run a whole class discussion? And then, because uh, it was really difficult, you know, there's a kid at the front who like, says something, but they say something really quietly that sort of the kid and they're facing away from the kid at the back. And it's just, it's a complete non-starter. You wouldn't try to have a conversation with a room full of adults with 30 people all sitting in different directions, you know, try and get everybody's attention in a pub for longer than five seconds. And you, you know, you want to hide into nothing. And so it just, I just thought just sitting in circles is just a really obvious thing to do. And so you, you said the, the, the methodology that Lippmann put together and it became really widespread quite quickly is that you start with a stimulus, you, you either maybe a passage from this novel that he'd written, or it could just be, you know, a photograph, a piece of art, a poem, you know, an object it can be anything, something to stimulate the kids thinking. And then they, they generate questions. You do a bit of work with the, with the students to help them uh, learn how to ask philosophical questions. So you do a little bit of work about the difference between open and closed questions and how open questions lend themselves to extended discussions. And also the, the, the difference between specific questions and general questions so that they can... So, for example, like a question like, you know, why is the sky blue? People often think, oh, well, that's a big, like, cosmic question. But it's actually... Although it's about a big thing, the sky, it's actually quite a specific thing about the science of color and refraction. And science has an answer to that. And it doesn't really lend itself to a good extended conversation. But, you know, like, what is the sky made of? Or, you know, where does the sky end and space begin? Or whatever, you know, is the sky even a thing? Or is it an absence of a thing? Those sorts of questions people can get really into. into. And so... Um, they generate questions and it's a democratic process so that they then select which question they most want to talk about. And then you go to the person who came up with the question and you say, what was your thinking? And then you open it up to the floor for people to, to build on each other's ideas. And we taught them this really simple technology of, of how to, you know, just if you've got something to say, then you stick your thumb up like this and, you, and, and they just rest it on their, on their knee so that you can see who's going to be, who wants to speak next. And if you want to respond to something that the speaker just said, then they sit like this, and so we know who to go to next. With their, with their thumb up and holding their thumb. Yeah, exactly. Just for the listeners. Yeah, exactly. Yes, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, so thumb up uh, if you want to speak, and then holding that thumb if you want to respond to something that's just been said. There are many different ways of doing it, and we would also have a beanbag or a ball or whatever, so there was a visual reminder of whose, whose turn it was to talk. And at first, I used to have to sort of say, you know, like, okay, like this person's turn to, is to speak next. And after a while, I sort of got to wanted to not use my voice. And then when the person, it was, became clear that, that their P 
piece had finished, I would just click my fingers and then they would look around the room and just pick someone else who had their thumb up. And in that way, the, the conversation would just would just click along, literally. And what you what you find as well is that is that the the conversation like sometimes I, I found that the, 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 the methodology that I was taught for how to do a philosophical inquiry was really quite rigid. You go through these 10 phases in the course of an hour and then that's that's what it is. And I found that a bit too rigid. And one of the things that was for, that was from philosophy for children, was it? Yeah, there's this organization. That ten phase. Yes, plan? yeah. There's this organization called Sapere. Um, in in Oz, I think you've got one called Fapsa or something. Uh, I looked it up. How do you spell each of them? So Sapere. How do you spell? Uh, Sapere is S A P E R E, which is Latin for wisdom, um, but it stands for something like the Society for the Advancement of Philosophy. Blah blah. Um, and then there's one in Australia called uh, FAPSA, F-A-P-S-A, is the Australian version. And they, they do it, they call it communities of inquiry. They, they run things called a philosophon. So you can get trained in the approach and then do a philosophon. And it's like, I don't know, it's some competition thing in Australia. So, yeah. And, and what the, when the kids really come to enjoy these sessions, because they get to talk about things like, you know, like do ghosts exist is one that they like talking about about the nature of god the nature of love why are people horrible to each other <laughs> and so they get to talk about things often with a one of the things that i talked about in that oracy piece i think is about like conversations that have a a moral dimension to them kids are much more open to discussing you know i used to find that i would get really frustrated as a science teacher that i just there was a certain percentage of my kids that i just couldn't even begin a conversation with them. It was just off their radar. They weren't interested in, you know, electromagnets. And, and I, couldn't, I couldn't really get very far in getting them to be interested in that. It, they just thought that this is irrelevant to my world and I'm never going to need it and I'm just not even going to, you know, engage in this conversation sort of thing. And I found that really frustrating. And so, <clears throat> but, but if you talk about bullying with that kid, they will come alive and they'll be like, oh, that's really out of order and this shouldn't happen and that shouldn't happen. And that, that sense of sort of justice is really, really strong in kids. And it gives you a hook and you think, right, I'm in here. I've got an ability to help this kid to develop their thinking, to think about evidence in different ways and so on. So, what, you know, when you're talking about ghosts, it might sound frivolous, but then you can really start to talk about, you know, why do you think, why do you think ghosts exist? And they go, oh, well, I saw a video on YouTube in which this blurry thing appears. And you go, okay, well, like, let's rate that evidence on a scale of one to ten. Like, you know, how strong is that evidence? And like, how, you know, should we take people's words for it? Why might people want to pretend that they've seen a ghost and they haven't? So they start to, you know, the moon landings is brilliant to talk about, about evidence. You know, why do, why do we think what we think? I think that those things are really, uh, really important. Uh, and I don't think that they're frivolous at all. So, so, yes, it gives the kids an opportunity to talk about stuff that they care about. And, and they're, they're, they're that, in a sense, is, is the... the content of the lesson if you like it's like this this topic <clears throat> but the focus for me as a, as a teacher is to is to improve the quality of their speech and to to give them phrases to use to start to sort of develop themselves into you know thinking about things more deeply so you, you know we have you start out with like sentence starters you know i agree with so and so because i disagree with so and so because so they, they just get used to giving reasons for their thinking and that they build on each other's ideas and that it's okay to, to change their mind. 
And kids really, really listen to each other far more intently than, than I'm able to as a teacher. So they would often say, oh, I want to build on what that person said. And I would go, I completely missed what that person said, but this is, you know, this is great. So, so uh, it's quite humbling, you know. Yeah, I, I, as you can see, I'm quite enthusiastic about it. I, I, I use this method still in the self-managed learning college where I work now, and uh, I, I stand by it. It's great stuff. That's great. You mentioned earlier that you, you were a science te- teacher, or primarily a science teacher, um, and how you did, you did struggle to feel like you were having the impact or, or kind of uh, enabling students in the way that you wanted to when you first thought about teaching. Um, I think I probably came to teaching with some similar ideas the ones that you came to teaching with, and I'm, I'm also a maths and physics teacher. I was wondering how, mm. I assume that you were teaching science at the same time as this learning to learn program was happening as well. I was wondering how you yeah. saw your science classes change uh, as this kind of happened. And, and also for, for people like myself who maybe don't have a dedicated philosophy or time to allocate to philosophy for children, whether, what, what we can do in our classrooms and that kind of a thing. Yes. So um, what I discovered through, through doing a master's dissertation in philosophy for children is that this is part of a, of a much broader tradition of, of oracy, of using speaking and listening as a, as, a, as a medium through which we can promote learning and through which we can promote speaking and listening. And there's that phrase that some people sometimes say that if you can't say it, then you can't write it. And so what I found was that my, my science teaching really, really transformed as a result of doing this master's dissertation, because I really understood the role of, of speaking and listening. And so I, that became really sort of embedded within my teaching practice that we would, we would talk in pairs and we would talk as a class, you know, before getting our books or pens out, we would be talking and speaking and listening to each other. And one thing that's really, really useful in relation to this, one, you know, one of the things that Tom Bennett rails against in that one of the, the chapters is about group work, and it's all about you know just like group work's really um, like trendy because we, we think oh we want everybody to get along, but actually you know you get one kid who doesn't do anything and another kid who's you know just making life really difficult for the other kids and so on, and that's true. You know, if you don't if you don't teach kids how to interact in groups, you know you have to make it really explicit again. And it will be awful. And there's a power shift as well in group work, isn't there? When you when you sort of hand over the lesson to the kids, in a sense, the the the, the narrative of the lesson gets handed over to the kids, and that's a, a quite a scary thing because it can be difficult. If it doesn't go well, it can then be difficult to get them back. And so, something that I found super useful was the use of ground rules uh, for group talk. So my PhD supervisor Neil Mercer has written about this a lot, and it's and it's really simple method. So you you it's just about recognizing that you know in a group of in a group of kids there are already ground rules that that govern their behavior and those ground rules might be for example uh, you know don't say something if you're not 100% sure that you know the answer or it could be you know like don't contradict anyone because that's just embarrassing and awkward or don't contradict the most popular person in the group because that's just you know social suicide sort of thing and so that those sorts of rules govern our behavior anyway and so we just like go through a process of, of coming up with a set of ground rules that are, that are healthy. So, for example, I've mentioned a couple of them before. So first, make sure everybody gets the chance to speak. Make sure that you give reasons for your thinking, you know. Um, and one, you, 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 you can go through a process where you, I could 
explain how to do it if you like, where you come up with, you know, six or eight ground rules. There's some really good resources. There's a thing called Thinking Together. Part of the, If you Google Thinking Together Cambridge, Neil and some colleagues put together all these resources about how to set up ground rules that promote what he refers to as exploratory talk. Have you come across exploratory talk? I think through your stuff, yeah. Right, okay. So very briefly, it's... Um, they, they did a study back in the 80s where they were looking at how people talk around computers because there weren't enough computers to go around, so there'd be two or three kids per computer. And so they thought, well, how can we make it so that you know every kid can learn from this? So they looked at the quality of talk around computers. They recorded all of this classroom interactions and then coded it, and they thought, you know, how can we characterize these interactions? And they came up with this model of three modes of talking one of them being uh, cumulative talk, where the talk just stacks up and up and up, but there's not really any critical engagement, questioning or giving of reasons, for example. Then there's disputational talk, you know, like the answer's four, no, it's not, the answer's six, no, it's not, the answer's four, oh, I'll just put four because that person probably knows it right. So, you know, we see lots of, lots of disputational talk in, in politics, for example, you know, person, politician A says, we've got more nurses than we've ever had before, Politician B says there's less nurses than we've ever had before. And there's no, like, can we just get to the bottom of how many nurses there are? Yeah. And where does this fit in a historical trend? Like, there's, there's no critical engagement. It's just, like, Punch and Judy. Um, and then there's, there's exploratory talk, which is, which is talk. Oh, it's in the States, around the same time, they started talking about a similar thing called accountable talk, where, think, where we, Neil refers to it as like a social mode of thinking. He talks about interthinking, so that we're thinking together, so that if, if, I, if I share what I know about this, then somebody else responds to that, and then later on I go, oh yeah, building on what that person says, then I think this now, and I've changed my mind about this, and you can create this sort of like a hive mind, if you like, where people think together. And Neil's written, there's a brilliant book called Interthinking, which he wrote with Karen Littleton, which is, uh, I think ahead of its time we're nowhere near getting our heads around this yet as an education system but yeah it's this idea that we can that we two heads are better than one right that we can that we can learn how to interact in really healthy ways and overcome the the unhealthy group dynamics that that can happen in the absence of explicit ground rules and guidance and so <clears throat> what i found was that in terms of my own to come back to the question in terms of my own science teaching one side developed these learning behaviors in my students that they understood that, that speaking and listening was really important and that how to speak and listen together in, in groups and pairs was really important. Then I could set up a group task and know that they were going to be on task. And that frees me up as a teacher to go around and problem solve and to sit down with students and to have much like, more in-depth conversations than I would other be able to, otherwise be able to manage. So it was really transformative in terms of my science teaching. Could you give us a, like a concrete example of one of these group tasks that you would set in the science classroom around which like, there could be a, a dynamic uh, and extended group discussion that you could go around and facilitate? Yeah. Okay, so there's, there's one... There are ways of doing it badly and there are ways of doing it well. So, for example, like lots of people talk about group roles often when they talk about group work. You know, this person is the ideas generator this person is the manager, this person is the scribe. And in my experience, those, those ideas don't really work at all well unless the task is unbelievably well-planned and it takes hours to think about how those roles will interact. And it's just, not, it's just not an efficient way to go about things. 
So it has to be quite light. So, for, so for example, there was a there was a lesson that I used to use often, which is based on an idea from a book by Paul Guinness called the Teaching Tool the Teaching Teacher's Toolkit. It's called Quick on the Draw, and you can do it at the start of a unit or at the end of a unit. So, what you do is that you go through the textbook, and it takes about an hour to resource this. It's really quite quick, and it's reusable over a long time. So you go through a textbook uh, and, and the units that you're going to do, and you just pull out, you know, easy questions, factual recall, and then slightly more difficult questions. You know, why does this happen? And then, you know, building right up to, you know, so in curriculum, in in terms of what we used to have as, until recently as national curriculum levels, say like, you know, this is a level four question. That's a what question. And then a level five question is a sort of why question. And then level six is like making links and so on. And level seven would be like, you know, a six point exam question. So you would have four piles of leveled questions and each of them are given a like points, right? So, so they would, so you put them in a group of two or three or four, however many works for you, three or four works pretty well. And they go and get, a, they, they have to do, for example, five level four questions and then, you know, a bunch of level five questions and they work their way up and there's a scoreboard up on the, on the, on the interactive whiteboard at the front of the room. So the kids like would go and get a level five question, say, and they bring it back to their table and they've all got to find what the answer is, agree on what the answer is, write it in their book and then memorize it. And then they close their books and then they flag you over. And so you would go over and then you go, right, I'm going to pick that person. And without looking, they have to give me a, you know, a really good answer to that question. And if they can do it, then one person goes and gets the next question the other one goes and puts a tick on, on the board. And if they don't get it right, then you say, I thought you were a team. Like, why, is this, why does this person not know the answer? And then you walk away and you can hear them all squirreling away going, oh, my God, we've got it now, we've got it now. So it's really, really high energy lesson. And it just runs itself. In a sense, as a teacher, it's quite sort of boring because all you're doing is going around just, you know, checking stuff. Um, and it's, it's, it runs like clockwork. So that's a really, it's a really good lesson to do at the start of a unit so that they start to appropriate the language that they're going to use in a far more effective way than if you were to just, for example, give them a list of keywords that they need to learn, you know. And it's really good revision lesson as well. So, um, yeah, it's great. Quick on the draw. I'm curious because I'm imagining, I'm imagining the potentiality of blame occurring in that game. Like, you know, they've all discussed it. They've, they've said they all know it. One student's a bit weaker. They all close their books. You come over, you choose the weakest student. They don't know. You go away and that student gets blamed. Uh, was there anything in your program that kind of mitigated against that? Um, I don't know. I don't know if I would really necessarily notice the blame thing happening. Like, I, I think that they would be more focused on just like, because it's, it's that idea of competition. They're, they're in competition with, with the other groups to, you know, score the most points by the end of the lesson. And so it facilitates cooperation. Uh, I, like, I mean, of course you get, you know, you get examples of, you know, when things don't work. I've, had, I've run a lesson, I've run a really pain, painful one of those lessons once where there was an Ofsted inspector in the room uh, and uh, there was one group, the group that he was sitting right near, they'd, they'd like been some beef between them and they'd had an argument and they were all just sitting there like this. Um, and it was it didn't work at all. Um, and that was, you know, a, a lesson, I think. Um, it was sort of unfortunate. It, it never really happened before and it happened to happen 
in the Ofsted lesson. Um, but so I don't know what you. What, I'm not sure what I'm, the question is. Jonah, in terms of blame, are you talking about how to resolve conflicts within the lesson, or how to? I was I was actually reading a paper yesterday that was talking about um, the importance of having like a cohesive community and a supportive community for students to start to be able to speak up and speak out um, and not be kind of shut down by the students. And, I, you know, I've seen, I have seen this kind of thing uh, in schools where a student will like make a joke to the class. Uh, they might be a shy student and then other students will kind of go, oh, that's not a funny joke or whatever. But, but in this particular context, when groups are comp- competing against other groups, I just imagine sometimes it's like, oh, why did you stuff up? It's like on the on the football match when you say, oh, they missed the goal. It's like, oh, what are you, yeah. what are you doing, mate? You missed the goal or whatever. Um, and I was wondering if there was anything that, you know, part of your program that kind of mitigated against that. I'm not sure. I mean, pe- people are always going to rub up against each other in, uh, you know, and and annoy each other. There's always going to be some sort of friction. Um, I think that the, I wouldn't say that you could necessarily mitigate against it other than through this use of ground rules, which is all set up to facilitate cooperation and, you know, fairness in practice. Um, and they get good at that really quickly. And especially if you give one person in the group the role of making sure that the ground rules, so we, the, the ground rules will get every kid to sign them at the start of the year and they'd be up on the up on the wall and then it was one kid in each group's role to make sure that the ground rules were being followed so that helps because one of them has got the sort of the slight role of a, of a policeman if you like to say oh that person hasn't tried or you know you're letting us down or whatever you know you need to step up a little bit um so ground rules and then just yeah i suppose you have to respond to things like that you can't you can't rule it out completely people are annoying aren't they? people annoy each other all the time uh you just have to have ways to to get around that when it happens. Cool. It sounds like a really exciting lesson, um, and I think I'll probably be trying it in the new, near future. I just had, okay. you know, I just I just thought maybe that could be a, a thing that came up. But to to get us a little bit more on track again, I think Beth's got a question for us. Okay. Yeah, thank you for describing those processes. It's really useful for new teachers to hear, you know, literally how you do it. And I'm interested in another aspect of this. Um, intervention at Seaview. So the um, language of learning that you said oh, yeah. you co-constructed with your students, I was wondering how did you go about getting students to think about um, how they were learning and develop? Because you had a little poster in all the rooms that was of a brain and the different learning processes they were doing. How did yes. that, be, how was that created? That, that, was, that was probably one of the most difficult aspects of, uh, of putting that program together was to, we, we understood early on that you have to have a language of learning that you know if you want kids to um to learn about electricity then they have to understand you know the language of electricity voltage and current and flow and charge and all of that stuff and so you make that really explicit and similarly if you want them to get good at learning then they need to appropriate a language that helps them to describe themselves as learners and how learning happens and you have to embed that the use of that language and also make it consistent across the school so that the stuff that we're doing one of the big achilles heels to come back to those the problems with those big learning to learn interventions previously um what's often been found is that is that people can learn really good for example cooperation skills or you know memorization techniques or whatever in a learning to learn lesson but then they don't transfer out into other areas and so we understood that we had to have a whole school language of learning 
that was used in learning to learn and that was used similarly in other subjects so that kids had a more sort of joined up diet of learning. Um, so we understood the importance of it quite early on, but the practice of actually getting it right, the, the first year, the, the government had published um, this thing called the PLTS, the Personal Learning and Thinking Skills, a framework of 36 different sort of uh, level descriptors that describe, you know, effective participation, teamwork, communication, and so on. But it was very big and unwieldy, you know, 36 things. Like we, by the end of a year of working with this thing, we didn't know what those 36 things were. The kids certainly didn't. And it was very managerial, the language. And so in the second year, Kate and I sat down and looking at some of uh, Art Costa's work, uh, the states around habits of mind, uh, he, there's, this, there's this model of 16 habits of mind. And again, we thought 16, we could maybe get this down. And so we, we came up with this, with this model of, of, of habits of mind that was based around three areas of thinking, being, and doing. And we loved it. We were, we were just like slightly in love with this framework. It was very elegant and it was, we, we liked it, but we came up with it ourselves and we shared it with the staff and we shared it with the kids and we're like, right, we're going to use this as our language of learning this year. But we didn't consult with them. We didn't ask the kids what they thought of it. We didn't ask the teacher what they thought of it. And so it was just a piece of paper that was stuck on the wall and it wasn't owned by them at all. And um, around that time, there were some students came in from a local university and we gave them a research project to you know, look at the use of habits of mind across the school. And they found that it was almost nil. So that didn't work. Um, and so we thought, well, we need to go back as, uh, to the drawing board. The school, the school had six. So that brain diagram is, is divided into six areas. So the school had six, what they referred to as uh, entrepreneurial attributes. The school had a specialism for entrepreneurialism. Um, and they were like risk-taking, creativity, determination, problem-solving, um, I can't remember the other two, teamwork and something else. Um, and so what we wanted to do was to drill down through that language and say, you know, teamwork is all well and good to say we're going to use teamwork in this lesson but what does that really mean you know if it's a group task what does it really mean or in PE in a sports team uh, what what teamwork's huge right like there's books and books and books being written about you know how to make teams work effectively and so what what specific learning behaviors will make this team work effectively what are we looking at today is it about negotiation is it about compromise is it about pooling ideas is it about making sure that everyone feels included whatever it is. So we wanted to drill down through these broad things and to identify really specific learning behaviors that we could talk about in lessons to talk about the how of learning as well as the what of learning. Um, and to do that, we, so we had sessions with, with students. So we took those six words and like risk taking, what does risk taking mean to you? What does that mean? And they, oh, well, it means putting your hand up when you're not sure. It means, you know, uh, trying something that you've never tried before, it not, not being afraid to get things wrong, right? Um, and so we had this sessions with students and whole school, whole staff sessions um, where we came up with this language and then we made it look nice and we, we, we put it everywhere. So it was the background on people's computers when they logged in and it was, it was posters everywhere. It was in the students' planners. Um, and so... It was much more effective, I think, for that reason, because it was owned by the kids. And it also wasn't fixed. So that, that version in the, in the paper is one, one example of it. But we also had you know, blanks. So we had ones where 
uh, you know, some of the words were filled in, but the students were able to fill in other words so that they were able to, to make it their own. So I think that the fact that it has to be flexible and it has to be co-constructed and uh, owned by teachers and students alike. Out of all of the strategies that you tried, because there are quite a few, we were wondering how would you really tell which ones were the most effective or which ones were crucial, which ones could have gone? I mean, you've said that the process, you were actually changing things um, as you went. So maybe whether you think that there was any scientific or, I don't know, maybe, Mm. uh, yeah, what was your way of like of figuring out what was effective and what wasn't? That's such a good question. And um, it's, it's very, very difficult to answer. I was, well, we, we were recently, I, I do have an answer, but um, I, I was recent, we've recently put in for some funding to, uh, to run this program in other schools and to see if we can replicate it. And the, the EEF turned down the application because they said it's a, it's a complex intervention. It's, you know, there's, too much, there's too much going on. We don't know which bits are effective and which bits aren't. And what we said was that that's literally the point of it. Like it is a complex, it's, it's, a, it's made of multiple. So, so, so I, I think that there'd be two, there'd be two answers. One is the, the fact that it was a complex intervention. And one is the fact that we really, really, really focused on transfer and how to make sure that transfer happened because it doesn't happen automatically. So as I said before, I, I used to work in the pharmaceutical industry. And in, in medicine, the idea of complex intervention, I literally just did a literature review about this yesterday. If you, if you go on PubMed on the medical you know, database, there are thousands and thousands of, of articles about complex interventions. And the idea is, is that, for example, if you look at like post-operative pain, the, the standard is just to give people morphine and then you, know, you tail off the morphine. But morphine is quite expensive and it's, quite, it's got some really quite horrible side effects. And, you know, not that great. And so um, what they found was that if you, you, know, you use a little bit of morphine, but you also use a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, you also give paracetamol, you also use local anesthetic at the site of the wound, you also, you know, whatever, give them a window to look out, so I've put some nice music on, <laughs> some chocolate, whatever, you know, just throw everything that you have at this, at this problem. How can we give, make this person's experience in the post-operative period more pleasant and we use a number of things, and lo and behold, you get much better pain relief, and it's much cheaper, and there's fewer side effects. And so this idea of, they call it multimodal analgesia in pain relief, but the idea of complex interventions is, is really quite sort of widespread in the medical sciences. And in education, there's, this, this idea just barely exists. I just did a, a review yesterday on ERIC, you know, the, the, the US-based, but it's essentially international database of education research i got 124 hits for um for the word like complex intervention or multimodal intervention but actually the the vast majority of those were uh, clinical papers either clinical stuff about you know like delinquent children or about you know adults you know with, with like aggression and stuff like that there was the, the most the most that we hear about it in education. This idea is, is in terms of special educational needs, where they would say, you know, for example, like using multimodal interventions. And what they mean by that is multisensory. So, for example, like feeling the shapes of letters and stuff like that, and you look at it and you draw it, and you uh, you you know you listen to the sound that it makes and so on. So, 
that this idea of multimodal input is sort of in education in the terms of special needs. And interestingly, nine of the papers that I came across yesterday were about the education of, of health professionals. So, so in medicine, they're thinking about education in terms of being a complex intervention. But in education, we're still obsessed with silver bullets and, you know, like the, the whole of the, the EEF's program. Uh, and I think that they're doing some really interesting work. Uh, but they're always looking at one thing in isolation. Like, does, does Saturday school make the difference? We'll do a Saturday school in 50 schools and the other 50 schools will have no Saturday school and we'll see if that makes the difference. Or is it, you know, like if you do homework in this way, does that, is that the silver bullet? No, what about if you, you know, do phonics like this? Is that the silver bullet? And it's just ridiculous. The, the, world, is, <laughs> the world is complicated and multifactorial and we're just, we're just firing single bullets at things. So I think that the thing that the thing that made this thing work, and I, I talked about this in the paper, is the very fact that we took a bunch of stuff for which there is evidence of, of impact on academic learning in the literature, and we put that all together into one program so that the marginal gains that might arise from any one of those areas, which might be you know a slight increase but non-significant, and we see that a lot in the research literature. Um, that they would that those marginal gains would stack up and interact to produce a larger effect size overall, and so and I think that that's one of the one of the bits of, of original knowledge that my PhD you know when you do a PhD it's like what's the new knowledge here? One of them is about you know learning to learn, but one of them is about this is about using a comp the, the introducing in a sense or not or at least expanding on the idea of complex interventions um, in education. So that was one. And the other one was transfer, but I could come back to that later. I'm kind of seeing a parallel here, James, and I, I want to know if you, you see it as well. You talked about how with your students and with the intervention itself, it wasn't so much about the, the content of the teaching, but it was more about the actual process of instruction or the process of learning that contained you know, the mm -hmm. real seeds of learning for your students. And I'm actually also wondering, in terms of the in intervention more broadly, could it have been actually that the process of you with the three other teachers co-constructing the intervention, paying more attention, this is something Beth was mentioning earlier, paying more attention to the students, monitoring things, but having more time set aside and the actual process of that co-construction, could it be that that was actually the thing that generated these increased learning outcomes rather than the content of the actual program itself? Yes. <laughs> I think... I'm not. I'm not 100 sure what you mean by the. So the process of co-constructing. How, how do you mean? Well, there was so much buy-in. Like, like you said at that first meeting. Yeah. The amount of energy that there was, there was a different feeling in the room. If you had have chosen to done, do something else, like you know, run a weekly workout session or something, um, and if if you had have, that would have um, you know given students more time to get to know you guys, more opportunities to talk outside of class and get to know each other. Mm. Could it have had a similar effect, just the fact that you were all so, so involved? Yeah, I think so. And, and some people have, have pointed that out as a criticism of the program. They've said, well, you know, it's not, it's not the program itself. It's the fact that you're all so into it. And I, I, I find that a really amazing thing to criticize. If you say like, oh, well, you know, like, if, like get this thing to work with jaded old cynics and then I'll believe in it, you know. Well, no, because if you get it run by jaded old cynics, that won't work. Like the fact that we were also that we were also fired up about it. That was a part of the complex intervention. That's a part of what made it work. And so, 
I don't know. I mean, if if we if you had you know infinite time and infinite resources and money, you could you could run infinite permutations of this program and remove one factor at a time and figure out which of the things is having the most impact. But I don't think that I, I would do that. I think that there are better ways to spend time and money. If and, and so far, well, I want to be clear about you know the claims that we're making here. We should be cautious. This was this is one small study that the. the, the Co the first cohort of learning to learners, which was the focus of this study, is only 118 kids, and it's a it's a very strong thing to say. You know, they they all did really really well in their academic learning across all of their subjects, and what we're saying is that was down to us. It's not their teachers who worked so hard to get them to that point, or the students themselves who having to work to that point. That was that was us that did that. You know, and that's a that's a really really strong claim to make, and I don't make it lightly. I think what I what I would say is that we had a we had a role to play in that in that improvement that we saw, and I think that you can I think that you can argue that by saying, you know, look at look at the one of the, I saw you sent a thing about you know like the fact that um, this was year nine the, the paper that we published was the end of year nine scores right so, and they're, they're they're not standardized tests they were teacher assessments and it could have been you know teachers could have uh, have cooked the books so to speak. And first of all, I mean, I don't think that that could have happened because because with the, the outcome measure for the paper was all subjects combined. So this is, you know, looking at what's happening across, you know, up to 80 different teachers, none of whom knew that this was being assessed. You know, the idea that a teacher would would inflate their grades so that my PhD would, would you know, have better results is a bit fanciful, I think. Um, but what when but what subsequently happened is that the, the paper that we're going to publish later this year is uh, the GCSE results. So after five years, and the, the learning to learn cohort went on to achieve the best set of results that that school had ever seen by some mile. And uh, and in particular, the the the, the attainment gap, the disadvantage gap, had closed from the bottom up. It was the far by far the biggest closing of disadvantage gap of any school in the city there's 10 schools in our city and 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 so you know like non-disadvantaged kids if you like uh benefited from the program as well they did better than their counterparts in the control group but it was kids from disadvantaged backgrounds who who gained the most from it and so there's there's a, there's kind of an ethical dimension to this which is that you know that this made a a very real difference to those kids or something that was something that happened while those kids were at that school, made it so that they did far better than than the than the previous patterns suggested they would, and then you have to say, well, what what made that difference? One of the biggest differences between the well, the big the biggest difference by far between the control group and the learning to learn group is that one of them had 400 more lessons of subject learning, and so you would think at a glance, well, obviously they would do better in in subject assessments, right? Because they had 400 more lessons. And then when you that was a control group, yeah. yeah. And then when you find out that actually the one, the, the group that had four hundred fewer lessons performed better in in tests of subject learning at, at year nine and through to GCSE, then you have to say, well, what were they what were they doing during that during those four hundred lessons? And then you go, oh, they were involved in an evidence informed program, a multi multimodal program that was designed to help them to become more effective at learning. Then you think, well. I think that you could make a, a reasonable case to say that that had a role to play in their in their subsequent academic success. 
but it's one study. It's one study. We haven't necessarily got an answer in terms of there was a range of strategies. You know, there's philosophy for children. There's all these, you know, project-based learning. Mm. Is so in terms of how someone might go about implementing some of these changes at their school, especially for yeah. teachers who are maybe just starting out their career and aren't in a leadership position. Is there one strategy in particular that you would point to as being really important or for you is it all about a kind of whole school approach where, you know, for me to make change as a young student, I'd have to go to leadership, talk to them, get their, get them to pull together a team and it's really more about that kind of leadership rather than one particular approach that a teacher can implement in their classroom? Yeah, you can absolutely start small. You can start with just your own lessons. So, so um, I think that I think if I had to boil it down to to one idea, it would be um, the to to it's a bit of a cheat. So to combine two things: speaking and listening about learning, right? So 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 getting kids to talk about how learning is happening, and it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to take over your lesson. Just bookend your lesson with it. Here's what we're doing today. How are we going to learn this? And then when you're reviewing learning later on, as well as saying, you know, how many people now know this or whatever, you know, hold up your traffic light cards if you think it's A, B, or C, and you can do that sort of, you know, feedback, get that sort of feedback from the students or look in their books. You can also say, well, how well did we did we share ideas today? Do do we feel like we listened to what other people had to say or not? You know, did, did were you able to um, to go through a series of multiple steps or did you get stuck at the first one and then just give up, you know? So, so talk about the how of learning would be the, the place that I would start. And you can do that very easily in your own lesson. You can also do stuff as, as teachers, we can do stuff outside of our lessons. So, you know, if you get trained in, in the approach of philosophy for children, you can do it in tutor time, you can do it as a lunchtime club, as an after school club, as a Saturday morning thing. So you can you can get involved in that way. I think it's best if you can have the sorts of you know time and resources given to it that we had. So it's worth making a case to to um, to management. But you if that if that if that will isn't there already, then there are ways of sort of having proof of concepts and just just walk walk the talk and just start doing it yourself. And actually, you find that you're like the teachers who are involved in this program. They all talked about the sort of getting their mojo back. Because teaching is bloody difficult, isn't it? Like you were saying today, you had a you had a hard hard day. It's really hard work. And actually, what this what this approach does is that it's it's fundamentally about helping the kids to find their voice, and they really respond well when you when you listen to them in that way. And it, and it's just a really energizing thing. And then other teachers say, well, you know, what's going on? Like, why have you sort of got this pep in your step all of a sudden, you know? And and it can sort of spread in that way. So it doesn't have to start from the top down. There, there are things that you can do. I, I would strongly suggest, just based on my own experience, N equals one, get trained in philosophy for children. Get in touch with FAPSA and uh, and how that goes yes my other question um is about i guess the end goal of this program so when we started out you were talking about your heart being in another place it wasn't just about numeracy and literacy it was also about building resilience in children or in your students mm. 
And I was wondering, were there other, I guess, goals that you had in mind when you were planning this intervention? And why is it that you chose to kind of write this report purely about numeracy and literacy? Is that, are you doing this for an outside audience? Is this about the pressure that of policymakers that this is the only thing that matters in schools? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great question. Um, yeah, absolutely. Like some people have said in the past um, that, you know, the fact that learning to learn previously hasn't made the, the looking at it as a whole hasn't made the results go either up or down is neither here nor there because it's not about turning, you know, D's into C's. It's about it's about, you know, developing resilience or character and all of that stuff. Uh, and I, I sort of agree with that to an extent. But um, what I think is that is that academic attainment is a really useful sort of like a canary in the mine, if you like. Like if you're, if you're trying to help people become more effective at learning and their scores aren't going up, then it's probably not working very well. So I like I, I see it as as a useful indicator as to how well the program is is working rather than an end in itself. Although, as you say, you know, there, I'm, I'm not <laughs> I'm not against the idea of turning D's into C's. Obviously, this is what we want to see as well. You know, it's it's not an either or thing. I want I want kids to achieve academically, and I want them to do it by becoming more able to drive their own learning to become more switched on. We talked about finding their on switch a lot. So they can drive it because what schools tend to do is to to just like see teaching and and intervening you know the other language of intervention in australia it's a really interesting language like the intervention is what you do with like a drug addict you know it's like it's like some somehow like it's, it's, it's fundamentally seeing a child the child state as being somehow equated with being ill and in, in requirement of you know being improved or cured or sort of saved in some way um and i think that that's a bit nefarious and 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 what what it does is that it inculcates this this sort of dependency so that like lots of teachers that i talk to talk about this that the kids become very dependent on the teacher and they ask really stupid helpless questions that they could find the answers to really easily but they don't and they're just like little sort of baby birds just like wanting you to you know drop bits of food into their mouths and and actually, you sort of have to step back sometimes and go. They have to go. What page is it on? And you go, don't know, and just walk off. And they'll find the page within five seconds. You know, but like, just you just sort of have to have to help them to sort of realize that actually, they need to drive this for themselves. And like identity is is really huge in this. The first project that we did at this very start of year seven was the. the six-week projects on who am I, you know, like just go away and answer that question in as many ways as you can. Some of them got in, you know, interviewed family members, you know, you were talking earlier about, you know, like the indigenous people of the country, you know, you need to like recognize who you are, right? What is our identity within this world and where do we begin and end and the world begins and ends, you know? That stuff is really important because I think that we can just get lost. Like secondary schools are so big. Everyone wearing the same uniform you know, it's really difficult. The, the place where I work at the self-managed learning college, I asked a student recently, what's the difference between this place and school? And she said that at this, at this place, every, every, you know who everybody is. They've all, they, they don't wear a uniform. You know who they are. You know what their personality is. She said that being at school is like being in a sci-fi film where like all the kids, there's like, they're all the same haircut. 
They all have, they have the same gadgets. They use the same language. They say the same stuff. And there's, there's just no sense of like individuality or identity. And I think that that's really at the heart to come back to that sense of resilience. You know, if you haven't really developed that sense of yourself, and I don't think that I did as a kid. And so funnily enough, I came to Australia when I was 18 and lived, I lived in Bondi for a year. I can remember sitting um, on a bus one day. It's ridiculous. And just thinking, I'm a person. <laughs> like, I'm a person I, I, that, that is independent of my family, that is independent of my friends, that's independent of... It was like one of the moment when I just cut loose as a little pod in my own mind. And I was like, it's just me, this, you know? Like, this, is, this was just a real sort of moment. And, and when you've got that strong sense of identity, then you, can, then you can meet the world on your own terms. And if people haven't got that sense of who they are and why they are the way that they are, then, you know, to come back to that whole thing about probation, when life delivers you a, a shitty hand, then you go under because you don't have that sense of like, no, I'm going to fight this. This is, this is not the end of me sort of thing. That's, that's the, the thing that, that I had in my heart, like the end goal is to, is to help young people to find their feet, to find their voice and to, to attack the world, whatever it might be in terms of their family relations, their future career, their interests, their relationships, friendships, academic work. To, to meet it on their own terms, you know? Well, yeah, what I'm interested in, because I share those views about, you know, the purpose of school and that it's about more than just literacy and numeracy, that there's, you know, things that we can do around social skills and students building their identities, resilience. But do you think that um, school should be measuring their impact on those factors? Is there a way we can? Or are these just intangible things that we do while documenting what we're what effects we're having on these academic types of learning because it seems like you've chosen to kind of leave that aside or, or was there a way that you were measuring resiliency or its impact in some way um yeah you can you can measure that stuff it's it's very difficult to do because like you say it's quite it's quite a you know like marks on a test you can get a really good sense of like of the, the, somebody's ability to do science by how how well they're able to answer to answer marks on a test. You know, it's not perfect, uh, but it, but it's a good. You can get a good handle on it. So we used questionnaires. We used like self-esteem questionnaires, and like a couple of them, we saw gains in. Uh, there was a questionnaire about about personal growth, I think it was called, and one about curiosity, curiosity and exploration. So it seems like the kids, you know, like through answering these questionnaires questions, they seemed to be more curious at the end of about the world at the end of it that they would watch the news that they would you know read newspapers they would ask questions of of people whereas previously they hadn't through interviews uh, so we interviewed students um about their experiences and we interviewed teachers and that's you know qualitative data so it's softer but it's still hugely informative um through looking at what they wrote in their journals um so you can you can get a handle on that stuff as well um, but you analyze that qualitative data in your PhD. Yes. Yeah. Um, and there'll be a bit more of it in the in the next paper that we'll bring out later this year. Um, yes. And so yeah, absolutely. And I think that I think that we should look at things in from through multiple lenses. You know, every time you use a research tool, it tells you something new. Just talking to kids, like we don't we don't ask kids enough questions. I don't think about their experiences of things. 
so instructive just to ask, you know, like we, we can tie ourselves up in knots going like, oh, how am I going to measure whether this intervention had this impact on the kid's score? Just ask the kid, you know, like what do you think was effective in terms of helping you learn? Because they'll know what they know and they know why they know what they know and what happened. Was it through their brother or sister explaining it to them? Was it through, you know, being in your lessons? Was it through coming through after school sessions? Was it through watching YouTube videos? They will know why they know what they know. And just asking them is it something that we should do more of, I think. So, yeah. And that, again, that, this, this may be a, a topic for another podcast because my other big love in education, which sort of came out of my experience of doing this research and finding, seeing how transformative doing research was in terms of my own practice, um, getting teachers to, to do research and to ask these questions to get a handle on the impacts of their practice in different areas um, and combining a mixture of qualitative and quantitative research tools to do that. I think it's the way forward. Cool. That, that sounds like a, I look forward to hopefully scheduling another podcast with you, James, to explore that. That'd be really cool. Yeah. I'm wondering about what's happening at Seaview now. Could you, is, is the program still going? Has someone else taken it on? Uh, kind of, was it a, mm. a permanent or a, kind of like a long-term culture shift that you managed to generate or, or what's happening now? Yeah, it, it, it's, uh, as far as I'm aware, it's not happening there now. I still know people who work at that school. It ran for four years and there's just there's so much endless change in the education system. The only constant is constant change, it seems. And so things just sort of get implemented and then get replaced with new things all the time because you get new, you know, you get new leadership people coming in who want to implement their idea and so on. And so, yeah, it, 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 got, it ran for four or five years. The, the school underwent lots of changes. There was lots of changes to management. There was huge staff turnover at one point. And so it just, it, it, yeah, unfortunately, it didn't stick around. And, it, and it, that wasn't only in that school. You know, it's actually, as I said before, you know, learning to learn year seven curricula, these, these sort of essentially like transition interventions, were really widespread about 10 years ago, and you don't hear about them very much now. And that's partly because um, the expectations around maths and English have increased to such a degree that, that head teachers and timetablers just don't feel that they can give any time to anything. So, you know, the, the schools that are having, you know, six or eight maths lessons a week, where they used to have three, because of, because of how important maths is to the school's you know, headline results and therefore, you know, to the head teacher's future in the job. <laughs> and so people, you know, like those, those top-down accountability measures make it so that, you know, if learning to learn, if, the, if these things aren't valued in the way that we measure what schools are doing, then they just get squeezed out. So unfortunately, uh, it doesn't, but we are working with a couple of schools at the moment who started to put these lessons back in place in year seven. So it, feel, it feels a little bit like learning to learn was like this huge flurry of activity that happened. And then it was, and then it sort of, lots of people seem to reach a similar conclusion to, to Tom Bennett, that this was, that this was not the answer and we should move on. And it feels like it's hanging by a thread at the moment. You know, it's just sort of swinging in the breeze and we're basically the only people who are still banging on about this. And we're hoping to be able to get a toehold when I finish my PhD to see if we can start persuading schools that maybe all is not lost and that this 
I mean, I can I can easily see. It seems like such a a sensible thing to to teach children how to learn as well as what to learn. And there's so much really fantastic work going on at the moment around cognitive science and you know the, like just how memory works and how memorization works and the very central you know the very central role of memorization in learning. Um, I can easily see a future where every school in the world, like secondary school, has a learning to learn component so that you're help, helping the kids to be able to activate, to switch on, to be able to access the curriculum. Because uh, schools just seem to be hugely inefficient places often for these very reasons that kids, the kids aren't activating, that they become sort of dependent on this teacher-only top-down model of implementation and intervention. And they sort of just drift from lesson to lesson essentially knowing that they'll be able to do the bare minimum because their teachers, you know, their teachers will do whatever it takes when the time comes to just drag them over the line, kicking and screaming. And, and so it sort of inculcates this culture. I, I use this, <laughs> I use this phrase on Twitter the other day. I said that teaching, teaching breeds dependency among children. And somebody accused me of holding the profession in contempt, <laughs> which I thought was quite a, quite a strong response. But it's, it's something that I see, I see again and again, teachers talking about this culture of spoon feeding and they find it so frustrating. You spend all this effort teaching some concepts about, you know, how to balance equations with this group of kids and they get it. And by the end of the lesson, you think, oh my God, they got it. And you go revisit it a week later and it's like it never happened, you know. And that's partly because it wasn't repeated and they didn't, you know, pr practice, you know, retrieving that information. And the more you repeat it, the more, the more, you know, the better you get at that. But actually, I don't know what your science curriculum is like, but the science curriculum in this country is absolutely huge. And even when we were teaching five lessons a week at my last school, the kids doing triple science, you don't have time to revisit stuff. You're just like charging through this vast ocean of knowledge, which is like about a, an inch deep. There's no depth to any of it. You just need to know two things about how a nuclear power station works and the difference between a plant and an animal cell. And there's not really any deep knowledge, deep, deep really deep understanding of, of science happening. But you just have to, to go at a crazy pace to get through it. So um, I, can, I can see a future in which learning to learn is, is in every school. If we can, if we can figure out a way to, to replicate this model in other schools, and that's a big if, um, for those reasons of, of implementation science that were talked about before, you know, those schools have to sign up to a dedicated team of teachers that, that they're going to stick with it. They have to resource it properly. They have to, you know, give consistent messages. They have to put whole school practices in place so that these skills and attributes and learning behaviors that are developed through programs like this can transfer and translate into improved learning across the piece. And it's, it's no small undertaking. But I, I'm, I can I can envisage a future in which that happens. That's awesome. You've obviously got the the passion for it, James. So that's that's really I can see that really driving it. We've seen a lot of the common threads that have you know kind of existed from before your time teaching. Some of your views and aspirations as a teacher, and we've seen how they've kind of mapped onto your current work. But I was wondering about. Uh -huh. And this might be the last question before we do the kind okay. of close-up questions because we've been talking for an hour and 40 minutes now. Um, <laughs> um, what, if anything, did you change your mind about through, through this intervention? Mm, um, 
What did I change my mind about? One thing was about assessment. So at, at first, it comes back to your question about, about uh, how do we measure this stuff. We, we started out by thinking, like, how can we measure learning to learn? What is learning to learn? How can we tell if they're getting better at it? And um, we thought that it was important to assess it for that reason. And so like, we went through loads of iterations. We had kids, um, you know, like having portfolios of evidence, you know, where they were, they, they were, you know, accruing, you know, like giving each other little slips saying, oh, I noticed this person, you know, was, you know, problem solving when they went to the dictionary. To, and it just became so arduous and it was flaky as anything. And what we came to the conclusion was that you can't assess learning to learn itself. It's, it's a it's a process of growth and it feels like the the, the you know it's like um digging up a plant to weigh it every day you know in order to prove that it's growing like you don't need to do that you just you know you you give it nutrients you give it water and you know maybe later on measure the fruit that it that it bears right and so like the assessment of it was not like by assessing learning to learn itself and that's partly why we focused on academic learning across the piece as as the primary outcome measure there were a whole whole bunch of them but that that the, that has to be the the indicator as to whether or not it's successful so i changed my mind about assessment that's really interesting maybe we'll we'll, we'll go into the the few closing questions james so the first one was uh what advice would you give to your first year teacher self yeah so um one would be so so but my first two years of teaching were grim <laughs> like I, I was just uh i was i was supposed to always like they call it bad trad so i think that I was, I was like standing at the front of the room just barking out orders um i didn't put any sort of thought into you know building the quality of my relationships with my students i just saw my role as being to deliver the curriculum and to implement the school's behavior management policy in an even-handed and sort of like robotic almost way, right? And that kind of surprises me given some of how you've cached your journey into teaching and why you wanted to, to be a teacher. Yeah, I think it was just, uh, it was just baby steps. I tend to, I tend to be quite a slow learner. <laughs> so I, I, I get things wrong for a long time before I understand something. Um, and so, yeah, and I don't know whether it was uh, whether it was to do with my training, my mentor. I didn't have particularly sort of inspirational mentors. I don't think, although, yeah, I, I don't know why that was. But I, I ended up I was shouting a lot, and it felt like I was shouting at my own lack of planning, which is not a nice feeling. <laughs> um, and it was really, really, really horrible. And and then this this uh, teacher turned up in my. Um, department who was one of those proper sort of maverick you know just like lead with your personality type teachers and it just blew me away when i realized that actually um like to be a person to be real to be to be yourself to be authentic and to actually talk to the kids about stuff that they're interested in to show you that to show them that you're interested in their lives he used to say that the behavior management battle is one in the corridor um, not by you know shouting at kids to tuck their shirt in, but just by talking to them, showing an interest in their lives, being funny, like making kids laugh is so so important. It's really interesting when um, 
when they were when they were doing that when they were doing that coding of like three different types of talk cumulative disputational exploratory talk there was a fourth category of talk that they didn't know what to do with and so they just left it alone and it was humorous talk it was sort of you know wordplay and just you know like class clowning sort of thing that teachers that previously I would have found that to be annoying if I was at the front of the room trying to make be the authority and teach stuff you know that was very important to understand and somebody cracked a joke that would sort of like undermine me I would get really annoyed with it and I'd be like oh like do you want to share that with the class and all that sort of you know authoritarian stuff and but actually you know laughter is hugely important you know the, like politicians the least funny politician understands that they have to shoehorn a gag into their speech at some point because it's just like a common point of identity. It's a, a way that you relax and you go, we're okay here. You know, this is safe environment where this is okay. So I would, I would tell myself to relax and be myself and to not be afraid to, to share some aspects of your personality with your kids. Cause then they, they will see you as real and they will respond to you as real. And then when they, when they know that, then when you go, this isn't going well, then they go, oh, I want, I want the nice version of him back, you know. So it gives you a handle on them, um, which is great. Could you please finish this sentence for us? Oh yeah, I remember Mr. Mannion. He's the teacher who. Oh yeah. Okay. Hang on. I've, I've made some notes about this. Where is it? Because. Uh, um... Yeah. At first, I thought that question was about a teacher that I had had. Um, the it's a funny one. It's not a question that I've thought about often. I got a when I left Sea View, the kids made me this amazing book with all this stuff in it, and one of the kids said, uh, "We're going to miss you, sir. You're one in ten thousand." <laughs> I thought that was, I was hoping that that was a, a numeracy uh, shortcoming that that wasn't some backhanded compliment, but you never know. I used to I used to be really into I used to be really into um doing exciting science stuff. I used to do the, the like the, the sort of explodey science show. So I would, I would quite like to be thought of as somebody who made science uh exciting and seemed like something that's you know a worthy pursuit. Um but coming like to, to come back to learning to learn, there, there's a I'm current I'm considering using a quote that a kid said once in an interview um, as the title of my PhD. So um, I was doing an interview. This was when it would, when it would, so at the end of year seven, it expanded into year eight and then again into year nine. So the first cohort of learning to learn had three years of it. The second cohort, when it started to forget to phase out, it was phased out when the second cohort were in year eight. So I interviewed this student at the end of year eight when, and it was just after she'd found out that it wasn't going to continue into year nine. And she said um, that she was really gutted when she found out that it wasn't going to be on the timetable next year. And then she said, but I realized that it's all right because it's a part of me now and I can take it forward into whatever I go on to do, um, which was amazing. Uh, and so that would be nice to be remembered as, the, as somebody who helped that to happen. <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. If you could put, put a poster on the wall of every classroom in your country, what would you, what would it say? Um, I used, I used to have a, I used to have a big thing that hung above my desk that said question everything. Um, so, uh, that would be one question everything. Um, yeah. 
question everything. <laughs> cool. And who hel- who helps you question everything? Where do you go for your kind of education fix? I'm talking about who do you follow on Twitter? What do you sign up to in terms of email lists and things like that? What journals do you read, etc.? Um, yeah, so um, it's, there's probably two levels to it, I guess. that I have like a general level of interest and that's pretty scattergun. I, I sort of I follow where the debate goes on Twitter. Um, and so, you know, yeah, I get recommended papers quite often or I just, you know, ask people for things. But I've got a huge admiration for you guys. Like you're so sort of inquisitive. I would love to do what you do and to, to be really open-minded and to, to interview lots of people. Um, so, so, um, yeah, I, I sort of similarly to you, I follow, follow the zeitgeist and follow my nose. And then in terms of my own research, that's a lot more systematic really, where, um, I just, I follow leads and I talk to people and I, lots of it's just done by chasing up references from the ref, from the bibliography of papers that I read and just, you know, um, expanding my knowledge base that way. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've, I follow, I follow lots of what happens on, on Twitter, although it increasingly seems to be becoming very combative, um, and quite an unpleasant place to be. And so I'm, I try to sort of keep out of it a little bit and watch from the sidelines rather than taking part in it because it's become a bit fierce, this whole trad prog thing. And I think it's yeah um and it's really yeah there's i know there's been some stuff recently in australia about like the research ed in australia and so on it's just there was a really good blog i don't know if you've seen it yet by deborah kidd did you see it it came out this week and she was just saying like we just need to stop infighting teachers fighting each other is you know really unhelpful and what her take on it which i think is a good take is that actually one of the biggest causes the, the the fact that we're talking about the disadvantage gap you know when you ask a teacher what's the cause of the disadvantage gap they often talk about teaching they talk about you know and they, they don't talk about like wider societal issues around you know child poverty man like child poverty is huge there's like four million children in this country living below the poverty line and when you're not eating when you're not being looked after at home then you are stressed out. And when you've got stressed hormones in your brain, then you can't learn well. We understand this well. And actually, that's the, that's the enemy here. <laughs> if, we've got, if, we, if we're wanting to help kids to unlock their potential, we should be focusing our gaze on that and not on each other. It's a good blog. Mm. We'll, we'll make sure we put a link to that in the show notes. Mm. And to close up, do you have any last calls to action, James? Anything you'd like? listeners to go away and do um yes so um i would love to i would love to hear from people um if you read the paper read the paper see what you think of it um do you agree that this is something that could happen more widely within the school system uh, get in touch we, we in the uk we run we run uh, training and workshops um for people, we, we it's free for a school to host a session. Kate came up with a great idea to so we host sessions in schools. This, the hosting school gets free places. We get free space to use, uh, and it just it just pays for itself. Get trained in philosophy for children because it's awesome, and uh, and follow your heart. You know, like 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 carve your own path. I think I just wrote a piece this week that relates to. 
professional development again about recognizing that you know is you don't have to do what other people say is important you, you need to follow your own heart if you're a teacher you're a highly educated person who's gotten into a really noble profession for good reason and if you are then if you then find yourself you know having to do things in your school because you're because you're told to but that you disagree with then you know you need to challenge stuff we need to we need to have a we need to have a critically engaged profession where people are not afraid to sort of ask questions i'm not suggesting that you know you dress down your senior team in a in a staff meeting or whatever but i think that we need to to uh take really seriously what we do and and find our own path you know and what the 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 problem the problem with all the trad and prog stuff is that it totally overlooks the like importance of contextual differences you know if you look at a staff room you've got you know teachers who've been there for 30 or 40 years who taught the parents of parents of kids who are there and you've got people who are really fresh faced and keen you've got people who are a bit sort of like not really looking like they want to do it anymore and and there's there's no way around that there's just like in any in any walk of life you're going to get that and so you know i've started to hear examples of schools saying you know this is what the research says this is what we all must do that is totally just simple-minded and misinterpretation of 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 how of what the research tells us and of how complicated education is and how multi multifactorial it is and the importance of agency, the importance that actually, you know, if you look at the EEF toolkit, all of those practices that we look at, or Hattie's list of effective practices, we think of those as as like sort of sort of disembodied concepts, don't we? Like self-regulation, oracy. We've talked about them in this podcast. But actually, all of those things were ideas that were owned and generated and implemented and evaluated by people who really believed in what they were doing. Or maybe not the evaluators. You'd hope they were a bit more hard-headed, but um, that's the key, right? It's about finding your own path and finding what works. And and I think I think that we need to have a much more flexible education uh, system of the really education systems. So if you're if you're a trad teacher and you want to just you know work in a school where you have you know, silent corridors and all of that stuff that happens in, in tr those sort of new wave of traditional schools. And if that's your thing, and if you're if you're into that as a parent and you like it as a kid, then fine, you know, like that should happen. But I don't think that we should be dictating to everybody that that's the way forward, because to, to my mind, I want to develop people who are resilient emotionally and who are self-activated as learners. And I don't think that that would happen in that school. And I want there to be the ability to to run other types of schools within the system um and actually that's quite an interesting development recently in this country like free schools and academies which have been much maligned you know the government initiative where they sort of they're free of the local authority control so they're just in direct relationship with the department for education uh and lots of people are really against free schools and academies but actually that freedom has led to some really, really interesting, innovative practice that would not have happened had that had free schools not come to pass. And that, that you know, I, I really welcome that diversity. Um, and I think that we need to be just a bit more pluralistic in our thinking and less binary and saying this is right, this is wrong. Uh, you know, you're an enemy of promise and all of that simple, silly-headed stuff, and just be a bit more pluralistic. Thanks so much 
for speaking to us today, James. I think you're you're a really great example of someone who can can be really on top of the research, but as you say yourself, not in kind of a didactic way and suggesting that we all have to do it the same way because this is what the research says. And I think that's re- to me that's really refreshing, and I think it's a lot more of what we need in the current environment of, as, as you've mentioned, the Twitter debates that are going on and things like that. Yeah, it's just been a real honour to speak to such a reflexive and reflective teacher, someone who obviously takes education so seriously uh, and someone who's got enough passion and, and drive to really do something about it and try to create some positive change. So thanks so much for joining us today and, and I really wish you all the best for your future exploits. Thank you very much for having me. It's really good to talk to you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ERRR podcast with James Mannion. As always, you can find the show notes with links to all of the resources that were mentioned at www.ollilovell.com forward slash podcast. And if you did enjoy this episode, I'd love for you to write a review on iTunes to help more people to find us. As a bit of a follow-up to this interview, I'm very happy to report that I've planned a lesson for tomorrow afternoon in which I plan to use the quick on the draw group activity that James described in the preceding interview. Also, both Beth and I have booked in to expand our teaching toolboxes by undertaking a Philosophy for Children PD course starting in the next couple of weeks. I'm sure we'll be prompted to reflect upon these experiences in the coming episodes. If you've got any questions, comments, thoughts or reflections on today's show, I'd love to get a tweet from you. You can get me with the handle at Ollie underscore Lovell. It's always a pleasure to hear from each of our listeners. And again, thanks to Cameron Malsher for following up on episode six. Thanks once again to the Australian College of Educators for their support in bringing this episode of the ERRR podcast together. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning.